You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. You guys are champs for hanging in here today. We've, we've come with some really heavy stuff, and y'all are hanging in there with us, so we appreciate that. Uh, I want to talk to you this evening. I've titled this message, The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. The Problem is Enmity, Not Ethnicity. <laughs> because I can't do it, man. <laughs> bust out laughing any minute. The problem is enmity, not ethnicity. And I'm going to be speaking to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to be reading that passage from the New American Standard Bible Translation, or as those of you who are familiar with the Just Thinking podcast, the non-Armenian Standard Bible Translation. (laughs) Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death, that is, by the cross, having put to death the enmity, enmity. It's a word that has all but disappeared from our contemporary lexicon. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you used the word enmity or heard someone else use that word in a conversation? Exactly. (laughs) But despite its rare usage today, enmity is a word that carries significant weight and importance, particularly when considered within the context of Scripture. By the way, speaking of context, I want to say at the outset of this message that I am Rather dogmatic that when Christians engage in apologetics, that is, when we engage the culture in a defense of the truths of the gospel, it is critically important that we begin that defense by defining our terms biblically. Now, every Christian in this room is an apologist. The only question that remains is whether you're a good apologist or a bad one. But every one of us is an apologist. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Now, I I sort of emphasize the importance of defining our terms biblically because words have meaning. Words have meaning. And it is the meaning of words which, for better or worse, establish the context for our apologetics. By not defining our terms biblically, we risk engaging the world using the world's terms on the world's turf. Consequently, we run the risk of ceding the moral, ethical, and more importantly, the theological high ground to an unbelieving culture and end up losing the argument altogether. As Christians, to not stand on a solid biblical foundation as it relates to biblically defining the terms we use, that opens the door to pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that all beliefs are equally valid, and that's exactly what the culture is trying to tell you today. As D.A. Carson declares in his book titled The Gagging of God, subtitled Christianity Confronts Pluralism, quote, 
entire vision of reality is at stake. Let me pause here, by the way. That's why you're here. That's why you're here at this conference. It's because there is an entire vision of reality that is at stake. That's exactly why you're here. Quoting Carson, one thing is very clear. It is quite impossible to be a Christian in any responsible use of that term and be a pluralist. The pluralist will explain the Christian and will doubtless conclude that the Christian is too tightly bound by tradition, naive in the area of epistemology, intolerant of other views, and so forth. All those things are happening, by the way. If you're not being accused, if you're not experiencing one of these accusations or, or more of them, that is, you're being accused of being too tightly bound by tradition, you're naive of what's going on in the culture, you're intolerant of other views. If you're not being accused of any of those things, you're living in some kind of bubble that you need to burst and get out of. Continuing to quote D.A. Carson, he says, pluralists are inconsistent in that they want to be understood univocally while insisting that ancient authors, let alone God himself, cannot be understood univocally. So you're getting... Let me pause here and say again, what you're getting is, even within evangelicalism, you've got people like Tim Keller and others like that trying to argue, well, nobody can really understand what the scripture means. You know, none of us is God, you know. So they're, 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 they're coming at us now saying, well, God can't be understood. How do, how do you know? I mean, even as Virgil and I, and you have Jim here, who's not just an expositor, but he's an exegete. <clears throat> You can tell a person what a, what a word or a verse means in the original Hebrew or, or, or Greek language, and they'll say, yeah, but how do you know, how do you know that? So, so, so it's, it's, it's a circular questioning, always trying to deconstruct uh, uh, what we know and how we know it, even when it comes to Scripture. That's what Carson is saying here, that the pluralists are inconsistent and in that they would argue that they want to be understood with one voice, but there's, while insisting that the original authors let alone God himself, cannot be understood with one voice. Carson says, they may have many religious experiences, but none of them deals with the heart of the human problem, the sin that is so deeply a part of our nature. Let me stop here again. I'm going to get through this quote. I promise you I will. <laughs> See, what I run into many times, and I was saying this on Twitter just a couple of weeks ago, what you're finding within the social justice movement and the, the critical race theory movement and Black Lives Matter is a good example of this. Because the payoff for them is to get paid. What you'll find is that they want the problem to be something other than sin in the human heart. They want the problem to be something else. They want the problem to be something that they can target that will get them paid in the end. So they'll say, well, the problem is racism. The problem is, is discrimination. The problem is, um, you know, the weight of my student loan debt. They want the problem to be something else, something that will reward them and give them the payoff that they want. They, they can't afford to let the problem be sin and that the solution be uh, biblical confession and repentance and coming to faith in Christ as a result because that doesn't get them what they want. So, the, so, so scripture's not enough for them. They need to have something else that's the problem that can be 
uh, either uh, identified as a problem with no solution, but as, as, as long as that problem gets them what they want, that's what they want the problem to be. It's never sin in the human heart. So, for instance, you've got the uh, dialogue is ratcheting up again about gun control, an oxymoron of a term if ever I heard one. They want to blame the gun. They want to blame the gun. Why? Well, because the goal is to, um, what's, the, what's the right word for it? Really, I think, is to, uh, the, the target is to, the total deconstruction of the Second Amendment. That's, that's really the goal. But what they're having to do is, with these, especially with these mass shootings, they always want to blame the gun. They never want to point to the motive or the intent in the heart of the person. Because I say all the time, the night before or the day before the shooting in Texas, and then this recent one in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Before those incidents occurred, those, those weapons existed. But they hadn't harmed anybody the day before. Those same weapons existed the day before. Didn't shoot anybody. Why? Because there was no animate human being with the intent to pull the trigger, get the gun, aim it at targets, and then pull the trigger. But they want to say it's the gun because the goal is to minimize, if not eliminate, your right to own weapons. That's not Jim Osman saying that. That's me saying that. So don't come at, don't come at Jim. Continue with, with D.A. Carson. They may have re- many religious experiences, but none of them deals with the heart of the human problem, which is the sin that is so deeply a part of our nature. In short, we must deal with massively clashing worldviews. Again, that's why you're here. This is really a worldview conference. It's got a cool name, the Equipping Conference. But what you're here to really talk about is, as D.A. Carson has put it, Massively clashing worldviews. And part of our responsibility, continuing to quote Carson, part of our responsibility is to explain competing worldviews from our vantage point. Let me stop here again. That's what an apologist does. That's what a capable, equipped, prepared Christian apologist does. They explain competing worldviews from the biblical standpoint. That's why it takes Virgil and me three hours of an episode of Adjusting Your Podcast, because that's what we're attempting to do. We're trying to help equip folks to understand things like critical race theory, deconstructionism, um, salvation, and other theological topics so that they can, they can understand and be able to articulate these issues, because that's what 1 Peter 3.15 commands us to do. And I want to challenge anybody here. I'm not trying to be condescending toward anyone at all. But if you, and you know this in your heart if this is true. If you're a lazy Bible reader, you need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. And you need to get serious, become a serious student of the Bible. Don't just read it. You need to study it and dig into it. Get a Greek-Hebrew lexicon and understand what these words mean in the Greek, what they really mean literally. So you can peel back the layers of God's word because I promise you there's more there than what's on the page. Carson says we cannot possibly engage at that level unless we ourselves have thoroughly grasped the biblical storyline and its entailed theology, unquote. Again, that's why you're here as apologists for the gospel. And as I said, every true believer in Christ is an apologist. 
It's vital that we not embrace the language of the culture as we endeavor to engage the culture. Did you understand that? You must resist the urge to embrace the language of the culture while you're attempting to engage the culture because the language of the culture is going to change from the language they're using today is going to be different tomorrow. Your job is to become so good at understanding and articulating the scripture because you know scripture does not change. I don't care what the language and vernacular of the culture is, scripture is not going to change. And it's still going to be able to address that issue regardless of the language that the culture uses. So you need to dig into that book. That's your job is to become better at that book, understanding that book, not understanding the culture. Okay? Christians ought to love others, yes, but not at the expense of the truth. This is what narratology tries to achieve. It tries to make you feel guilty for standing on the truth, and then they'll accuse you of being unloving because you don't cave. This is why we have the I don't care mug on the Just Thinking website. I don't care. Parenthetically, we have Galatians 1.10 to give you context there because Paul, the apostle Paul is saying, listen, if I'm trying to be a friend to the world, then that would mean I'm not a friend of God. And guess which one of those is going to take priority? Guess which one of those is going to win out, according to Paul? That's why we say, I don't care. I don't really care what the world thinks. I care what God thinks. So, yeah, Christians ought to love each other, but not love others, but not at the expense of the truth. We dilute the message of the gospel when we exchange biblical terms for the vernacular used by the world. John MacArthur says it this way. He says, the health of the church and the impact of the church is always based on the church's ability to keep objective truth clear. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And the health of the church is always based on her ability to keep objective truth, that is biblical revelation, what we have in scripture, clear, and never to blur the line between truth and error. When theology is watered down, MacArthur says, that line between truth and error is rubbed out. And I'm sad to stand here and say that the enemies of the church aren't just outside the church. We have enemies within the church who are trying to do this very thing, who are trying to water down the word of God so that that line between truth and error is rubbed out. This is why you have many evangelical churches embracing the LGBTQ agenda, saying we need to make room for them. They're embracing critical race theory. They're embracing liberation theology because we, they, they, they think the church is some big tent. As I said on one of the episodes, they think the church is like a Fred Flintstone water buffalo club. As calls for racial reconciliation and social justice increase both in fervency and in frequency, Christians must be willing to call a thing what the word of God calls it. The word is homosexuality. It's not gay. What the the culture calls racism, the Bible simply calls hate. That's 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11, and 1 John three fifteen. Listen, <clears throat> what the world calls racism, the Bible calls hate. Listen, there's only two attitudes you and I can have one against, uh, towards one another. One of two attitudes. I either love you or I hate you. Period. There's no isms. There's no phobias. I either love you or I hate you, according to Scripture. That's clear. Read 1 John. I either love you or I hate you. The only question is how that love or how that hate manifests itself. 
There's no isms. To show ethnic prejudice or ethnic partiality, which is a more biblically accurate term, ethnic partiality from what society calls racism, to show ethnic partiality toward another image bearer of God is sin. That's period. There's nothing else to say about that. This James chapter 2, verse 9. Hatred of any kind is a matter of the heart. That's why enmity, not ethnicity, is the root cause of the societal disharmony we are witnessing in the world today. Now, just a little bit of exegesis here. In its singular form, because the plural form of the word occurs in Galatians 5, verse 20, the word enmity appears only eight times in all 66 books, across all 66 books of the Bible. Those eight occurrences are found in Genesis 3.15, Numbers chapter 35, verses 21 and 22, Deuteronomy 4.42, Ezekiel 25.15, Ezekiel 35.5, as we just read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. And in each of those instances, the word enmity denotes a very intense, fierce, intentional, and deep-seated spirit of animosity or hostility between parties that are in opposition to one another. The 18th century Puritan theologian Jonathan Edwards elaborated on that reality when he said this, quote, Natural men are greater enemies to God than they are to any other being whatsoever. Natural men may be, may be very great enemies to their fellow creatures, but not so great as they are to God. There is no other being that so much stands in sinners' way in those things that sinners chiefly set their hearts upon as God. Men are wont to hate their enemies in proportion to two things. One, their opposition to what they look upon to be their interest and their power and ability. A great and powerful enemy will be more hated than the one who is weak and impotent, but none is so powerful as God. Man's enmity to others may be gotten over. Time may wear it out, and they may be reconciled. But natural men, without a mighty work of God to change their hearts, will never get over their enmity against God. They are greater enemies to God than they are to the devil. Yea, they treat the devil as their friend and master and join with him against God, unquote. In the book titled Man's Enmity to God, the 17th century Puritan theologian Stephen Charnock says this. He says, every action of a natural man is an enemy's action, but not an action of enmity. A toad does not even every spire of grass it crawls upon nor poison everything it touches, but its nature is poisonous. Certainly, every man's nature is worse than his actions. As waters are purest at the fountain and poison most pernicious in the mass, so is enmity in the heart. And as waters relish of the mineral vein they run through, so the actions of a wicked man are tinctured with the enmity they spring from. But the mass and strength of this is lodged in his nature. There is in all our natures such a diabolical contrariety to God that if God should leave a man to the current of his own heart, it would overflow in all kinds of wickedness. For the mere nature has fundamentally and radically as much of this enmity as the worst. For the disposition is the same. Though the effects may be restrained in some men more than in others, No man is any more born with a love to God than he is with knowledge of the highest sciences. 
There is indeed an active power to the attainment of those by the assistance of a good education. But man hath only a passive power to the other, as being a subject passively capable of the grace of God. This inherency of the, the inherency of this enmity in our nature, the psalmist expresses when he tells us the wicked are estranged from the womb. They are estranged from God from the womb. They go astray as soon as ever they are born. That's Psalm 58 verses 3 and 4. They go sinfully before they go naturally. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent, which you know is radically the same in all of the same species, unquote. Now, whether we want to admit it or not, the fact is that you and I are congenital enemies of God. We're born, we're conceived as enemies of God. Consequently, that makes us congenital enemies of one another. Enmity, not ethnicity, is why there can be no horizontal reconciliation, that is, between us, one-to-one human beings, apart from, first of all, having vertical reconciliation between us and God. But in either case, whether vertical or horizontal, it is faith in Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit and regenerating sinful human hearts that makes that reconciliation possible, not any man-centered or man-concocted method. As the 18th century Welsh minister and Bible commentator Matthew Henry said, if God justified and reconciled us when we were enemies, much more will he then save us when we are justified and reconciled. Now, sadly, the church's understanding of the biblical doctrine of enmity is so languid that it is virtually absent from our preaching and our apologetics. But there was one individual on whom the doctrine of enmity was not lost. His name was Jupiter Hammon. Jupiter Hammon. Jupiter Hammon was born a slave in October 1711. He died a slave sometime around the year 1806. Literally every breath, every heartbeat, every blink of his eyes, every cough, every sneeze, every hiccup that Jupiter Hammond experienced over the course of his 95 years on this earth was as a slave. On September 24, 1786, Jupiter Hammond gave a speech in New York City at the inaugural meeting of an organization called the African Society. Hammond's speech was titled, An Address to the Negroes of the State of New York, also known as the Hammond Address. Among the remarks Hammond made in that speech was this sobering admonition, quote, Now you may think that you are not enemies to God and that you do not hate him. But if your heart has not been changed and you have not become true Christians, you certainly are enemies to God and have been opposed to him ever since the day you were born, unquote. Now, I want to remind you at this point that Jupiter Hammond took every breath, literally, of his nearly 100 years of life in this sinful world as someone else's property. And yet the biblical doctrine of enmity is something that Hammond clearly understood. Now, contrary to what was a common stereotype concerning slaves, Hammond was not unintelligent or uneducated. Both of Hammond's parents, his father was named Obadiah and his mother was named Rose. They were both literate, meaning they both knew how to read and write. That was rare, of course, but it was a, a common stereotype that if you were a slave, no slave could read or write. But Hammond's parents could. They were both literate. 
And those slave Jupiter Hammond's owners, his owners were husband and wife Henry and Rebecca Lloyd. They were Anglican, okay? And they provided for Jupiter Hammond a rather rudimentary education through what was known in the Anglican Church as the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. That was the Anglican Church Church's missionary arm, the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts. As a result of that education, Hammond would go on to become the first black poet in the history of the United States to have his literary works published. Jupiter Hammond was a Christian who was convinced of the sovereignty of God. Convinced. So convinced was Hammond, in fact, that he, so convinced was Hammond that God was in absolute control of everything that occurred in his life that he saw even his own enslavement as God's divine providence in his life. Now, let me ask you, let me pause here and ask you, no show of hands. What is there going on in your life right now that you're complaining to God about? Here's a man who lived to be almost 100 years old, and every tick of the clock of those 100 years, he spent as a slave. Yet he attributed that. He attributed his station in life to God's sovereignty. Now, I don't know what's going on in in your life, but you're not a slave. So whatever it is that's going on in your life that you're complaining to God about, As Hammond declared in the aforementioned address to the Negroes of New York, quote, listen closely to this. Hammond said, we live so little time in this world that it is no matter how wretched and miserable we are if it prepares us for heaven. What is 40, 50, or 60 years when compared to eternity? Unquote. What are you complaining about in your life? Though in bondage physically, Jupiter Hammond was a free man spiritually. Perhaps freer even than some of you who are within the sound of my voice tonight. Hammond firmly understood that emancipation from his slavery to sin was a far greater concern and importance than being liberated from his physical shackles. It's my personal belief that Hammond's understanding of what scripture teaches about enmity demonstrates that he was a more orthodox, he was more orthodox in his theology than many formally trained theologians who have earned seminary degrees. This guy was a slave. But regardless of the level of theological acumen Hammond may have possessed, I'm convinced he would be criticized, if not altogether ostracized, by many evangelical social justicians today for holding to what they would undoubtedly regard as a hermeneutic of passivity, for having the temerity to believe that his subjugation to his white slave owners had been providentially ordained by God before the foundation of the world. No way. If Hammond were alive today, there is no way he would survive within wokeism. Absolutely not. Within the church. Because they would say, you're crazy. How could it have been God's will for you to spend 95 years on this earth as a slave? I have no doubt whatsoever that Jupiter Hammond, were he alive today, he would be labeled either a race traitor, a coon, an Uncle Tom, a house Negro, or worse. He would have been accused of not being enlightened or woke enough 
to the historical struggle for justice in America by those who are of a similar shade of melanin as he was. In other words, Hammond would be denigrated and dismissed, especially by many black social justice advocates today, for not beholding to what I refer to as a gospel of perpetual grievance. Hammond, Jupiter Hammond was a slave for almost 100 years. Yet his belief in God's sovereignty was so deep. He didn't complain. Now let me just put Daryl in the mirror. Daryl, could you do that? Whatever it is, whatever, whatever, see, listen. Unless, I don't don't hear any balls and chains clinking around here. So unless I'm in this guy's shoes, look at what people are complaining. Look Look at what people are saying they're oppressed about today. I'm tweeting from my $800 iPhone in the comfort of my air-conditioned BMW from my two-story house in suburbia, from my office, home office desk where I work remote, that I'm oppressed. <laughs> Listen to what Booker T. Washington had to say about people like that. Booker T. Washington, in his book uh, titled My Larger Education, he, he wrote about people like that, people who all they do is just walk around preaching a gospel of perpetual grievance. Just everything's grievance, everything's oppression, everything's woe is me. Listen to what Booker T. Washington had to say in this story here. Please listen closely. Washington writes, he says, a, a story told me by a colored man in South Carolina will illustrate how people sometimes get into situations where they do not like to part with their grievances. In a certain community, there was a colored doctor of the old school who knew little about modern ideas of medicine, but who in some way had gained the confidence of the people and had made considerable money by his own peculiar methods of treatment. In this community, there was an old lady who happened to be pretty well provided with this world's goods and who thought that she had a cancer. For 20 years, she had enjoyed the luxury of having this old doctor treat her for that cancer. As the old doctor became, thanks to the cancer and to other practice, pretty well to do, he decided to send one of his boys to a medical college. After graduating from the medical school, the young man returned home and his father took a vacation. During this time, the old lady who was afflicted with the cancer, okay, called in the young man who treated her. Within a few weeks, the cancer, or what was supposed to be the cancer, disappeared, and the old lady declared herself well. When the father of the boy returned and found the patient on her feet and perfectly well, He was outraged. He called the young man before him and said this, My son, I find that you have cured that cancer case of mine. Now, son, let me tell you something. I educated you on that cancer. I put you through high school, through college, and finally through the medical school on that cancer. And now you, with your new ideas of practicing medicine, have come here and cured that cancer. Well, let me tell you, son, you have started all wrong. How do you expect to make a living practicing medicine in that way? (laughs) 
Here's the point. Washington went on to say this. He says, I'm afraid that there is a certain class of race problem solvers who don't want the patient to get well. Because as long as the disease holds out, they have not only an easy means of making a living, but also an easy medium through which to make themselves prominent before the public. If the patient gets well, an entire industry of victimhood will get cancer and die. This would be the best thing for the black community. Until blacks throw off the shroud of victimhood, they will be at the mercy of doctors who treat a cancer that does not exist, but that they are paying for. You get the point. Washington's words are important for us to consider because you're hearing a lot today about systemic racism in America. But for something to be systemic, hear me out here. This is, again, I said earlier about why it's important for us to define the terms. Understand this. For something to be systemic is by definition to mean that it is literally everywhere and in everything. That's why systemic means by objective. That's what systemic means by objective definition. To say something systemic is systemic means it's everywhere. So if America were a systemically racist nation, I wouldn't be standing here today in the middle of Idaho. First, <laughs> do me a favor. Look up the percentage of black population of Idaho, will you? <laughs> seriously if America was systemically racist why would I be here listen the problem not only in America but in the world at large is not systemic racism it's systemic sin now sin is everywhere sin is the most systemic reality on the face of the earth but as I said see the woke don't want that to be the problem because God gets the glory for that they get nothing. They get nothing. You got a V? We doubled it. We doubled it? Gosh. Two percent. Two percent. See, we do our research on the just thing. We research everything. The British preacher and writer J.C. Ryle reminds us of the systemic nature of sin in his classic book titled Holiness. I mentioned earlier that there's two books you need to have in your library. Actually, there's three. If you have not read J.C. Ryle's Holiness, I commend it to you. Please get a copy of that book and read it. It it will change your life. It really will. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, sin is the universal disease of all mankind. Search the globe from east to west and from pole to pole. Search every nation of every climate in the four quarters of the earth. Search every rank and class from the highest to the lowest. And under every circumstance and condition, the report will always be the same. Excuse me. Wow. The report will always be the same. The remotest islands in the Pacific Ocean, completely separate from Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, beyond the reach alike of Oriental luxury and Western arts and literature, Islands inhabited by people ignorant of books, money, steam, and gunpowder, uncontaminated by the vices of modern civilization. These very islands have always been found when first discovered the abode of the vilest forms of lust, 
cruelty, deceit, and superstition. If the inhabitants have known nothing else, they have always known how to sin. The sinful attitudes, biases, and prejudices that you and I harbor toward one another all have the same root cause and origin, sin in the human heart of the individual. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in Mark chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable that he had uh, given them in the previous verses. And Jesus said to them, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? So it's not the, the culture's not the problem. The gun's not the problem. White supremacy is not the problem. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man. That is what defiles the man for from within. Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Virgil and I are both biblical counselors. We have a passion for that. My wife and I do biblical counseling back in L.A. through Grace Community Church. And... One thing we try to make clear, I don't care if it's premarital or marital. I don't care what the specific issue is. The root cause is always sin. Somebody in that relationship does not want to give up their sin. They don't want to give it up. They do not want to give it up. For the young people here, I know we have a boyfriend and girlfriend here. We may have some, I think there's an engaged couple here or soon to be engaged couple But especially for young people, because my heart is with you all. Before I met Melissa, let me just be transparent with you for for a second. Before I met Melissa, I came out of an abusive marriage where my wife was the abuser. God used that situation to put me on the path to becoming a a certified biblical counselor. I just never understood why spouses sin against each other. I just, I don't understand it. I just don't get it. But if you're taking notes, there's a book I want to recommend to you. It's called When Sinners Say I Do. When Sinners Say I Do by Dave Harvey. And if I could just put on my biblical counseling hat for one second, the one piece of marital advice that I would give you, I don't care if you've been married 40 years. You need to remember that you are married to a sinner. And the best thing that you can do for your marriage is to to pre-forgive that person for when they sin against you, you will forgive them. Because they're going to sin against you. They're going to sin against you. That's the one piece of marital advice that I have for you. You get that for free. We're not, we're not building that to Jim, to the church. This is just free. You need to remember that you are married to a sinner. So when sinners say I do by Dave Harvey, <clears throat> I commend that book to you. It was the 19th century Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who said this. Sin poisons the wellhead. Sin is in our brain. We think wrongly. 
Sin is in our heart. We love that which is evil. Sin bribes the judgment, intoxicates the will, and perverts the memory. We recollect a bad word when we forget a holy sentence. Like a sea which comes up and floods a continent, penetrating every valley, deluging every plain, and invading every mountain, so has sin penetrated our entire nature. I got to say one more thing about the whole uh, marital thing. When you, uh, many of you probably had marriage vows that you exchanged with one another when you got married. The thing about vows is that, and and, and I I want want the young people to hear me here, young people who are not married but who may want to be married someday. Do your marriage vows. Do them however you want. Just understand this. What makes a vow are not the words. It's not the words. You know what makes a vow a vow? What makes a vow a vow is a heart that has the intent intent to live by those words. Then it becomes a vow as you live those words out. And until you do that, they're just words on a piece of paper. Worthless. Worthless. So do your marriage vows, but understand this. If your heart is not motivated to commit to the words that compose, that comprise that vow, worthless. In its pragmatic zeal to partner with the world on matters of social justice and racial reconciliation, the evangelical church today has succeeded only in complicating what the gospel makes very simple. So simple, in fact, that a child can understand it according to Luke 18, 16. That simple gospel is this. Each of us has sinned against the holy God. That's Romans 3, 23. Our sinfulness is congenital. That's Romans 5, 12. Our sin makes us subject to God's wrath. That's John three thirty six. But by faith in Jesus Christ and his atoning and propitiatory work on the cross, sinners like you and me can be reconciled first and foremost to God. And then consequently, consequently, we can be reconciled to one another. That's the gospel simply stated. But see, when the simple message of the gospel is integrated and interwoven with worldly philosophies and ideologies such as liberation theology, the social gospel, the Marxist worldview that, is, that undergirds critical race theory and intersectionality, the gospel loses that simplicity. Consequently, it becomes nothing more than an obscure humanistic proposition of moral and ethical rules that center on mankind trying to save himself. That's the most silly aspect of what we're seeing in the culture right now. The culture believes that it can save itself from itself. Gun control. It's an oxymoron. How are you going to control an inanimate object? I'm convinced that the failure on the part of the professing evangelical believers to embrace a proper biblical anthropology, which is to say a biblical understanding of the innately sinful condition of mankind, is precisely why so many professing Christians today believe as if skin color were dynamic and not static. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. That kind of misplaced thinking is totally contrary to what the scriptures declare about the innate depravity of the human heart. To view melanin 
as dynamic and not static is to believe that skin color in and of itself possesses the inherent and autonomous capacity and ability to somehow cause a person to form sinful attitudes, prejudices, and biases about someone. Such misplaced reasoning is why I wholeheartedly reject the term racial reconciliation. I totally reject that term. Listen, races don't reconcile, hearts do. Did you hear me? Racial reconciliation is a non sequitur. It's an oxymoron. Listen, your melanin does not feel, it does not think, it does not love, it does not hate, it does not form intent, whether for good or ill, nor can it comprehend, discern, or distinguish between good and evil. Your melanin doesn't do any of that. (coughs) So how can this reconcile? Because, you know, that's how the culture defines race. They look at your skin color and they say, oh, you're white or you're black. See, that hat is black. This is white. But that's what the culture does. That's why we have to reject these terms. We have to reject the vernacular of the culture. Your melanin does none of those things because it cannot do any of those things. To argue otherwise is to deny what Jesus clearly declared in the passage I just read earlier in Mark chapter 7. That the genesis of all disharmony and disunity that exists in the world, not only today but throughout human history, is a direct byproduct of the sin nature that indwells each one of us. (coughs) Racial reconciliation. It's a joke. It doesn't even make sense. As believers, our collective failure to apply what is taught by Christ himself in Mark chapter 7 is what has given rise to a doctrine that I've termed sin by proxy. You heard Virgil allude to this earlier. As it relates to specifically to the concept of racial reconciliation, sin by proxy is the unbiblical idea that this present generation of white people should be regarded as collectively guilty of historical sins and grievances allegedly perpetrated by their ancestors against black people, particularly with regard to slavery, solely on the basis of their ethnicity. You recall one of the five reasons why critical race theory is unbiblical is that it imparts guilt to image bearers of God solely on the basis of the color of their skin. This is what sin by proxy does. So in addition to you being guilty by virtue of your skin color, you must also collectively repent of that sin and then make reparations for those alleged presumed offenses. By the way, on the matter of slavery, especially slavery in America, those of you who are listeners to the Just Thinking podcast, you've heard me say this before. If you ever were to visit Valencia, California, come by the offices of grace to you. I would love to give you a tour of the building show you around. Maybe John will even be there when you show up. But if you were to come into my office, that's where my library of of books is. You will find that I have more books in my personal library on slavery than any other topic other than theology. I've studied slavery for years. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I know a little something, something (laughs) about it. 
what wokeism does, woke, it's, it's like I said earlier in my first message, slavery is one issue, one way that, that the woke try to re-problematize things. So they'll reach back 400 years. It's always 400 years. America's been 400 years of guilt, 400 years. America's not even 400 years old. So how, how are you going to say America was... And I'm, I'm pretty dogmatic about this. Don't approach me when to talk about slavery and you want to begin in 1619 Jamestown, Virginia. Don't do that. You got to go a couple thousand years back. I stand before you at this podium as a descendant of slave owners. I got both sides going. <clears throat> One side of the family I, I, have, have their roots in slavery the other, as slaves. The other side of the family, I got slave owners. My wife, Melissa, right now, she's in the process of doing a really in-depth research of our, but, but her genealogy and mine on Ancestry.com. And just a couple weeks ago, she dug up my fifth great-grandfather. His name is John R. Harrison. He resided in Fairfield, South Carolina, Fairfield County, South Carolina. He owned 200, over 260 slaves. We saw the slave manifestos. We saw them. Slaves handed down to him by his father, Reuben Harrison. So you got people like the 1619. Who's who's ever heard of the 1619 Project? Oh, a lot of you have. See, that project is really named incorrectly. But, But again, that's that narratology. The narrative of uh, people like the, the, the woman who heads up the 1619 Project, their chronology of slavery always starts at 1619. And I've always, I've always argued that what we really need is a 1618 Project, meaning we need to, we, if you really want to talk, have an intellectually honest conversation about slavery, you need to start way before 1619. You need to start 1618 and go all the way back a couple thousand years because there would have been no slavery in America were it not for black Africans who willingly participated in the transatlantic slave trade to deport those slaves from West Africa onto North American shores. Listen to what Dr. Uh, David Eltis and David Richardson say in their book titled Atlas of the Transatlantic Slave Trade, just to make that point. Quoting, The strength and capacity of most West Africans bring us to a subject that is both surprising and upsetting to many uninformed readers. That burger man was, <laughs> it was good, but <laughs> didn't agree with me, apparently. The strength and capacity of most West African nations brings us to a subject that is both surprising and upsetting to many uninformed readers, namely the indispensable, listen to this, the indispensable complicity of Africans in creating and maintaining the slave trade. Even in the earliest history of the trade, the Portuguese discovered the extreme hazards and counterproductivity of trying to capture and enslave West Africans on their own. West Africans could and did attack and sink some European ships in retaliation. The rulers of Congo, Benin, and some other regions succeeded at times in temporarily stopping the the trade in slaves. Yet the crucial point was the eagerness of African rulers and merchants to sell slaves. 
Similarly, similarity rather, in skin color and other bodily traits as Europeans view them, brought African rulers no sense of a common African identity with the captives sold. Let me pause here and say, so what he's saying here is a point I made earlier, that the idea of black community is a myth. Even going all the way back to the transatlantic slave trade in Africa, <clears throat> these African rulers didn't care that their, uh, the, the people they were selling in the slaves looked like them. They didn't care. They did not care. European ships, European ship captains soon discovered the need to present ceremonial gifts to African rulers, to pay fees and taxes, even to anchor their ships and engage in trade and to employ black interpreters who went ashore with the ship's captain to haggle and bargain with local rulers over the price of slaves. So don't come to me telling me that slavery was just a white person thing. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Mm -mm. There would have been no slavery on the shores if it weren't for people who look like me. (coughs) But see, they don't want to talk about that. Reparations. What, what, What? what does the reparation is? How does he handle someone like me? You pay me reparations over here because on my mom's side of the family, yep, there were slaves. But over here, you take the reparations back because on my dad's side of the family, they sold the slaves. So I'm a net zero. I'm a zero sum. I'm, I'm, I, I get nothing. <laughs> I told you it doesn't pay to be black like Virgil and I are, are black. It, it, it doesn't pay. Is this idea of sin by proxy that has fueled and fed the propagation of such unbiblical philosophies as white guilt and white fragility, even within the church, so much so that many white evangelical Christians have chosen to remain in the closet, so to speak, for fear of being labeled racist for saying anything that might even be remotely construed as going against the current social justice narrative. And that narrative is to portray all black people as oppressed and all white people as oppressors. But the prejudicial feelings and sentiments that you and I hold toward each other is a direct and tangible byproduct of the enmity that resides in our hearts towards God. It's a reality that is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7, where he says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And yet, despite that truth, the false gospel of racial reconciliation continues to be preached from the pulpits of many evangelical churches today. But you see, nowhere in Scripture is the term race used in the same context as it is consistently employed today by the culture. Now, hear what I didn't say. What I didn't say is that you won't find the word race in the Bible. Yeah, you'll find that word there. But when you exposit and exegete that word, you understand that it's not the same context in which the culture uses the term. It's like I said this morning. Race is a social construct to the culture. In the Bible where you see the word race, it's not used. That's not the same definition. In April 2018, National Geographic published a special issue titled 
the race issue. April 2018, you can go online and search for this. National Geographic special issue titled The Race Issue. In that special issue, there was an article included, and the title of that article was, There's No Scientific Basis for Race, It's a Made-Up Label. This is National Geographic. Now, you usually expect National Geographic to concentrate on animals, and, but they nailed it with this one. November 2018. I'm sorry, April 2018. There is no scientific basis for race. It's a made-up label. And in that article was included a very important yet little-known fact about a man whose name you heard Virgil mention earlier, Dr. Samuel Morton. I'm quoting from that article. In the first half of the 19th century, one of America's most prominent scientists was a doctor named Samuel Morton. Morton lived in Philadelphia, and he collected human skulls. He wasn't choosy about his suppliers. He accepted skulls scavenged from battlefields and snatched from catacombs. One of his most famous craniums belonged to an Irishman who had been sent as a convict to Tasmania and ultimately hanged for killing and eating other convicts. With each skull, Morton performed the same procedure. Now listen closely to this closely to what Morton's procedure was. He stuffed the skull with pepper seeds. Later he switched to lead shot, which he then decanted to ascertain the volume of the brain case. So what would, ha- what would happen? Morton would take a human skull, stuff it with pepper seeds to see how much pepper seeds the, the, the skull would hold. Then he would empty the, the skull of, of what it contained. Morton believed that people could be divided into five races and that these races represented separate acts of creation. Here's why you need to be a a better theologian. Because here this guy, Morton, Morton had his own theology. He had his own theology of creation. He believed that there were five separate acts of creation by God to create these five categories of races, which I'm going to describe to you now. Still quoting from the National Geographic article. The races had distinct characters, which corresponded to their place in, a, in what Morton believed was a divinely determined hierarchy. So Morton argued that this is God's providential order of, of the species of humanity. Morton's craniometry showed, he claimed, that whites or Caucasian were the most intelligent of the races. Again, because the cranium uh, of a Caucasian person held more pepper seed. (laughs) Morton's craniometry showed he claimed that whites or Caucasians were the most intelligent of the races. East Asians, Morton used the term Mongolian, though ingenious, he said, and susceptible of cultivation, were one step down. Next came Southeast Asians, followed by Native Americans, Blacks, or Ethiopians, as Morton called them, were at the bottom. In the decades before, please listen closely to this. In the decades before the Civil War, Morton's ideas were quickly taken up by the defenders of slavery. So you see what believing a lie can lead to. When Morton died in 1851, the Charleston Medical Journal in South Carolina praised him for, quote, giving to the Negro his true position as an inferior race, unquote. 
Today, Samuel, by, by the way, <clears throat> I don't know how many of you in here have ever been to Charleston, but if you've uh, not been there and if you ever uh, have an opportunity to go there, please take some time to visit what's called the Old Slave Mart in uh, downtown Charleston, South Carolina. It is uh, the actual literal uh, port where slave ships would come in to port in Charleston and um, and offload their slaves to be auctioned off uh, on that spot. Matter of fact, <clears throat> there's a, a cobblestone street that you would walk down. The slave mart is well, depending on what direction you're coming from, um, was is on the left. But there's cobblestone. It's a cobblestone street from one end to the other. Those cobblestones actually come. Uh, from actual slave ships from a couple hundred years ago that they used those stones to balance the the weight of the ship out. So if you're ever in Charleston, take some time to go by the uh, the old slave mart. It's definitely a, an impactful uh, experience. But when Morton died in 1851, the Charleston Medical Journal in South Carolina, you, you, I read what they said, that, that they praised Morton for giving the Negro his true position as an inferior race. Today, Samuel Morton is known as the father of scientific racism. Another word for scientific racism is Darwinism. Is Darwinism. So many of the horrors of the past few centuries can be traced to the idea that one race is inferior to another, that a tour of his collection is a haunting experience. To an uncomfortable degree, we still live with Morton's legacy. Racial distinctions continue to shape our politics, our neighborhoods, and our sense of self. This is the case even though, listen to this, this is the case even though what science actually has to tell us about race is just the opposite of what Morton contended. It's like Virgil said earlier this morning, if you don't have Acts 17.26 highlighted in your Bible, you need to highlight it. Acts 17.26 is a one-verse apologetic against this kind of worldview. One verse. You don't need another verse. One verse, Acts 17, 26, will debunk the idea of race and totally shut it down. In a commencement address delivered at Western Reserve College in 1854, titled, The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered, The noted abolitionist, author, and educator, and former slave Frederick Douglass, wholeheartedly and unambiguously denounced Dr. Samuel Morton's scientific conclusions. Now, before I read this quote from Douglass, notice here the title of his commencement address. He didn't title this, The Claims of the Negro Racially Considered. He titled it, rightly and accurately, The Claims of the Negro ethnologically considered. I'm going to read a quote that's excerpted from this address, but if you're taking notes, again, the title is The Claims of the Negro Ethnologically Considered. I would encourage you to go online and read that entire address because in that address, Frederick Douglass uses Acts 17.26 to argue the equality of the black man with the white man. And what you'll find is black abolitionists use the Bible regularly to do that. The Bible is often blamed, especially by critical race theorists, and this was true to some degree. The Bible has been misused over 
hundreds of years to promote, propagate, and advance unbiblical worldviews like slavery, especially in the South. But the Bible was also used to abolish slavery. Apart from the word of God, slavery would have lasted much, much longer than it did. But Douglas said this about Samuel Morton. He said, common sense is scarcely needed to detect the absence of manhood in a monkey or to recognize its presence in a Negro. His speech, his reason, his power to acquire and to retain knowledge, his heaven-erected face, his habitudes, his hopes, his fears, his aspirations, his prophecies plant between him and the brute creation a distinction as eternal as it is palpable. Away, therefore, with all this scientific moonshine that would connect men with monkeys. That's what he thought of Samuel Morton. He thought his craniometry conclusions were scientific moonshine. Away, therefore, with all the scientific moonshine that would connect men with monkeys, that would have the world believe that humanity, instead of resting on its own characteristic pedal. Matter of fact, let me say this. Just, just poetic language that Douglas use here, uses here. He said, away with all that scientific moonshine that would have the world believe that humanity, instead of resting on its own characteristic pedal, Gloriously independent is sort of a sliding scale, making one extreme brother, making one extreme brother to the orangutan and the other to angels and all the rest intermediaries. Douglas says that mankind rests on its own characteristic pedestal, gloriously independent. I'm reflecting on Genesis two. Verse, correct me if I'm wrong on here. <clears throat> but if your translation is correct, where God creates man and woman, when Adam says, you shall be called woman, that word there is a capital W. When he goes on to say, you, were, you shall be called woman for you were taken from man. That's a capital M. If your translation reads those words, man and woman, in small letters, that's an incorrect translation. The reason is capital W and capital M is because of Genesis one twenty seven, Because God created man in his image. There's not another creature on the face of this earth that God created in his image. This is what Douglas, is, this is what Douglas realizes, that Samuel Morton did not. This is where this poetic language is coming from. It's coming from Genesis 127. Douglas goes on. He says, tried by all the usual and all the unusual tests, whether mental, moral, physical, or psychological, the Negro is a man. Considering him as possessing knowledge or needing knowledge, his elevation or his degradation, his virtues or his vices, whichever road you take, you reach the same conclusion. The Negro is a man. His good and his bad, his innocence and his guilt, his joys and his sorrows proclaim his manhood in speech that all mankind practically and readily understand. Unquote. So the idea of human races is a myth. Race is a myth. If you don't hear anything else I'm saying, hear that. Race is a myth. You must reject that term. You must reject it. 
the proper word as Douglas rightly understood. It's ethnicity. It's ethnic. Not racial. It's ethnic. It's ethnicity. Race is a myth both theologically and scientifically, and I would add biologically. For centuries, society, and sadly to a great extent, the church has unquestionably unquestioningly bought into that myth. The resulting damage has been well documented over the annals of both societal and ecclesiastical history, not only in America, but around the world. Man-centered efforts to reconcile people of different ethnicities is nothing new. And yet, invariably, those efforts have proven futile in ameliorating what is the root cause of the enmity that exists between human beings. And that root cause is the sin that dwells in us. I laugh my head off when I see people on CNN saying, well, we need to have a conversation about race. No, we don't. No, we don't. We need to have a conversation about the sin in the human heart. That's a conversation we need to have. See, by definition, reconciliation is a volitional act that occurs at the level of the human heart. And if I make, a, make another biblical counseling note here, this is what my wife and I do when we bring uh, two people together, a husband and wife, or in premarital counsel, we bring a fian- two fiancés together. What you're doing is you're bringing two hearts together, is what you're doing. That's really what you're doing. The only question is, are either of you going to be willing to humble yourself enough to come out of here reconciled? Reconciliation is a volitional act. It's a volitional act. Skin color plays no role whatsoever. None. This is static. It's not dynamic. It's static. Only the regenerative power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can alone turn our stony hearts to hearts of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can remedy what separates us both from God and from one another. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Apart from the gospel, how can it how can it be understood apart from the gospel and part what the gospel says about the congenital condition of our heart, that it is sinful from conception? Apart from that, how can it be understood how something as innocuous and fixed as the color of someone's skin can be observed with our eyes, processed in our mind, and formed as sinfully prejudicial attitudes in our heart? How can you explain that? How can I look at my guy squirrel right here? I'm observing the color of his skin with my eyes. I've processed what I observe in my mind. How does it get from here to here? See, only the gospel explains that. There's no other explanation other than the gospel. I wholly concur with what Pastor John MacArthur says. He says, as Christians, we ought to have a moral and social influence in our communities. We ought to use the rights granted to us to promote morality and decency in the public arena. But that's not the sum total of our responsibility to this world. We can't settle for mere social change and behavior modification. We must bring the light of the truth to bear in a world blinded by sin. 
And we must do what we can to halt society's decay, not through protest and political action, but through the bold proclamation of the gospel, unquote. But see, the culture doesn't want that to be the problem because that doesn't get them what they want. Jupiter Hammond, who lived his entire life as a slave, is now a free man. He's eternally free. You see, but the truth is, Hammond was already a free man even in the midst of his earthly enslavement. See, are you, some of us in this room aren't as free as Hammond was when he was a slave. Some of us aren't even that free right now. We're not chained. But in your heart, in your mind, you're not free. You're more enslaved than he was. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to rest in the reality that the same God who spoke into existence the heavens and the earth is in complete control of everything that incurs in it. Everything. Those of you who listen to Virgil and me on the, on the podcast, you know <clears throat> this is my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Ecclesiastes 7.14. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that the Lord created the one as well as the other. I promise you, if you can get that verse into your mind and heart, you will never have a bad day. Never. You will never Ever. I don't care what's going on. Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, when things are going well, be happy. Celebrate. But when things aren't going well, you need to remind yourself that the Lord created that good day as well as that bad day. See, that's what, that's what Hammond believed for 95 years. That God is sovereign over everything. The blessings and the adversity. If you can get that up here, I promise you, you will never have a bad day. Never. Cornelius Van Til, who lived from 1895 to 1987, said this in his book on Christian apologetics. Quote, he says, I feel that the whole of history and civilization would be unintelligible to me if it were not for my belief in God. So true, so true is this that I propose to argue that unless God is behind everything, you cannot find meaning in anything. Now, as I prepare to close, I want to shift gears for a moment and say a word about justice because we hear stuff, <clears throat> hear stuff incessantly about justice, 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 blah, blah, blah. There's an old maxim that says justice delayed is justice denied. Who's heard, who's heard that before? Justice delayed is justice denied. Well, those words could not be more wrong in terms of what Scripture teaches. As far as God is concerned, justice is neither delayed nor denied. God has promised that his holy, righteous, and impartial judgment will be meted out to those deserving other of it either in this life or in the next. I want you to make a note of one verse, 1 Timothy 5.24. This is a one-verse biblical theology of justice. 
One verse. One verse biblical theology of justice. It says, for some, their sins will be judged in this life. But for others, their sins are going to be judged after. This is why I can accept what is happening in the culture, knowing that a sovereign God is going to judge wrongdoing. He's going to judge injustice. If someone was murdered unjustly, he's going to judge that. If someone has something stolen from them unjustly, if a spouse was hurt by an adulterous spouse who left them, without biblical reason. God's going to judge that. He's going to do it either in this life or in the next one. But there, listen, hear me clearly on this. Injustice is not non-justice. That's what 1 Timothy 5.24 is teaching us. Injustice is not non-justice. That's what the culture wants you to believe. So this, this is what gave rise to Black Lives Matter because they thought the Trayvon Martin trial was an injustice because George Zimmerman was acquitted. <clears throat> oh, it's an injustice. Injustice is never non-justice. That said, it is naive for us to expect perfect justice in a world that is inherently imperfect. Justice is never perfect when left to the determination of sinners like you and me. It's imperfect because of enmity, not ethnicity. Scripture is clear that the world in which we live rests in the power of the evil one. That's 1 John 5.19. Ecclesiastes 5.8 says, If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. Crooked politicians, Ecclesiastes 5.8, got that covered. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world to save society. The culture's view of racial reconciliation fails to realize that our need for reconciliation is rooted in the enmity that exists between us and God. And society cannot hope to remedy with temporal solutions what is fundamentally a spiritual malady. The only solution is what Jesus himself preached. You must be born again. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.